Let's see what the stew has in store for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by awesome Patreon backers like the gallant Greg Gordon, the amiable Amadeo Rosa, and the clever Chris Franklin. Today, we have myself, Ange, along with Jared and Josh, and we're going to talk about how the video games we've played influence the role-playing games we bring to the table. Before we dive into that topic, though, we're going to ask our Get to Know a Gnome question. What is a character you've played that was based heavily on an existing character from some other source? Josh, I'm going to start with you. Oh, boy. Okay. So um, back in grad school, I was in an aberrant campaign. And um, we started the campaign right after the Incredibles movie came out (laughs) and I was all set to play a speedster. Um, And so I was basing my character heavily on dash, but the GM did something really smart because she knew that everybody had a favorite superhero that they wanted to base their character on basically just play that hero. So she let us build our personalities. She let us build our backstories and our histories, but she picked our powers. Oh, (laughs) Um, so we all came into this game with these characters that were like based on, you know, our ideal superhero character, but then it was like, we had no idea what our powers were going to be. And we got to discover them throughout the game. And we got, basically got to play like these personalities of one hero with like the powers of a different hero. <laughs> That's kind of fun. Yeah, it was really good. What about you, Jared? I'm going to count this as a character from a media property. We were, um, playing a Pathfinder game where we were using a third par- party product that allowed you to play like burgeoning demigods and i was playing a child of the god of strength i played it the entire time as randy macho man savage (laughs) (laughs) how how did that go over at the table it went over fine what didn't go over was me not being able to talk the the next day after uh game night (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that'll that'll happen that'll happen what about you, Ange? So my very first modern D&D character, which I count as third edition, which is, you know, over 20 years ago <laughs> at this point, but it's still in my mind is modern, was totally a gender swapped version of Legolas. <laughs> nice. I had, you know, recently seen Lord of the Rings and it's like, here, make a character. I'm going to make an elf ranger because nobody's going to tell me I can't play an elf. <laughs> and... I want to shoot things really well with a bow and arrow. Okay. So Kiana was essentially Legolas, just kind of flipped. More recently, though, actually quite recently, uh, got to play in a friend's, what, it, it was basically spies in the 60s type of, you know, intrigue game. And Oh, fun. My character was totally based on Parker from Leverage. <laughs> oh, amazing character. Yeah. I have to confess, this isn't the first time I've played a character based on Parker from Leverage. I mean, she's awesome, though, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, I have yeah. a thing for thieves and rogues, <laughs> and Parker just, she hits a lot of the buttons of, of a character I really enjoy, so... You know, I got to play the character who was really, really good at her job of sneaking in, getting in places she doesn't belong, taking things that don't belong to her, but not the person you want on the front line talking to people because she's going to screw that up. But she's so happy about it. Like, (laughs) she's a great character to have in a party, too. And I love the fact that she loves 
acquiring things, but it's not out of greed. It's just for the challenge of getting it. And like, yeah, the gold is really shiny. I, exactly. It, it doesn't have anything to do with just being greedy. Now I just have that episode stuck in my head where she was dressed up like the version of Bjork that they were they had uh, as the rock star on there. <laughs> <laughs> that show is so good. Seriously, for anyone who has never watched Leverage, if you are a gamer, you should watch <laughs> Leverage because the cast is based on a gaming group. It's like the whole way that cast is fit together oh, is, yeah. is purely based on a role-playing game. It's an adventuring party, definitely. Moving <laughs> into our main topic, I have been spending a lot of time playing Baldur's Gate 3 <laughs> over the last few weeks. And in talking about it with my fellow gnomes, we thought it would be worth having a conversation about how video games have influenced the games we bring to the table. Now, in some ways, this is kind of a full circle thing, since there is a very clear lineage of video games being influenced by tabletop role-playing games. After all, the first Baldur's Gate wouldn't <laughs> have happened without D&D at tables across the world. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how the script has flipped. Um, Jared, why don't you tell us about what video games you've been playing recently? While Ange has been uh, mired down in her uh, Baldur's Gate 3 playing, I have also been obsessing over a game, but it, it's uh, Marvel's Midnight Suns, which I did not jump on when it first came out because I didn't quite understand what it was. I just saw, oh, there's card-based combat. I didn't realize, like, if I had heard Marvel RPG, I would have jumped on this much sooner. And now I am obsessing over this game. That's been my most recent one. And then, oddly enough, before that, I spent an inordinate amount of time playing Spider-Man. <laughs> this shocks me. This is my shocked face. <laughs> what about you, Josh? Where where have your video game adventures taken you recently? Oh boy, recently. Um, so uh, like pretty much everyone in our sphere of fandom, I've been playing a lot of Baldur's Gate 3 as well. But also uh, a lot of World of Warcraft. Our our guild just got the ahead of the ahead of the curve achievement for um, the the current raid season, um, and um, that so that's been a lot of fun. And uh, Diablo Four too has been eating up a large portion of my time. Plus, I just uh, my husband and I just downloaded an old Sierra adventure game, um, Conquest of the Longbow. Oh. Yeah, it's it's a Robin Hood adventure game uh, by Sierra, and it's really well done. It, it still it still holds up. It's it's really cool. Obviously, as I said, I have been neck deep in Baldur's Gate. In fact, I will confess to having replayed Act Two because I got to the end of Act Two and realized I'd screwed up and people had died, and I was not about <laughs> to let that stand. So I replayed the whole act so I could actually save people. Mm. My other obsession has been Horizon. Zero Dawn mm. and Forbidden West. Oh, I love those games so much. And then also I should give a nod to last year. I spent a lot of time playing The Witcher 3, which I had avoided when it was, you know, more current and kind of was like, well, I've got this on Steam because I got it cheap and I've heard it's good. So let me play. And then, you know, obsession level playing for the <laughs> next six months or whatever it was. With those games in mind, let's talk about the times we've taken stuff we've found in video games and in turn brought it to the table. Josh, why don't you start with that? Because I know you mentioned you've taken some ideas from 
World of Warcraft and and use those. So here's the thing, like I don't really know the deep lore of World of Warcraft. I've played it for years, but like for whatever reason, like I don't know if I have too many other fandoms in there or what, but like the 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 World of Warcraft lore just like bounces off my brain. But that is handy when using it for inspiration because there'll be like a random side quest and they'll have like this awesome like ancient golem that awakens um and you have to go help him like re-establish connections or whatever like and i'm like wow i have no idea how this connects to this game world but i could definitely make it connect to my <laughs> role-playing campaign <laughs> and so i just get to headcanon everything um and i just like steal wantonly bits and pieces from there what about you jared i am going to mention a game that i didn't mention when we were talking about our favorites because this is one of my favorites i just haven't played it in a while but i love the dishonored games one of the things that i really like that you get to see in those is because this is a little bit more modern than you know a lot of fantasy games it's a lot more industrialized the idea of what is a dungeon in those is really neat because there are places that are like literally a factory where they are processing things and that is a dungeon that you need to go through because there are malefactors that are, you know, hiding secrets in that place. So you end up, you know, going into offices and things like that. And I really like that. And, you know, kind of along that same line, there's like the, the quarantine neighborhoods where it's like this area is shut off and you're not supposed to go in there. And all of that kind of feels like an interesting thing for an urban campaign because it shows you, you can have your dungeons and your, your, you know, your strange wildernesses and everything in the city. Like, hmm. because it, this district is this weird thing that you can, ex- you can explore. And on top of that, I love the, the wanted levels. It's, you know, it's, it's hard for me to always pin down exactly how I want to express it, but I like the consequence of, wow, you guys have just done tons of crap over half the city. <laughs> there were things on fire. <laughs> that was all very public. This is not dying down anytime soon. <laughs> And I use this a lot um, when I did my Streets of Avalon game. Um, we were definitely using things like, you know, the, the, their, their part of this, the city got quarantined off and it would flood every once in a while. So it was kind of this weird, neat location. And they did have like a wanted level on them every so often where, you know, they had to avoid the watch because they were in deep trouble. Unless uh, Eileen just used spirit guardians and chopped them all to ribbons <laughs> like she did in the, the alleyway that one time. But... So that's, that's been that campaign, especially drew a lot from Dishonored, even though Avalon is a little bit older, you know, like more traditional fantasy era. I have been in search of Mass Effect as a role playing game for a very <laughs> long time. And Mass Effect is this weird blend of RPG and shooter. Mm-hmm. The gameplay itself is shooter, but the story in the game is RPG. I love that world. Not everyone in my gaming sphere has played the <laughs> game. Therefore, I can't say we are playing this. Who wants to play a, a Turian? Who wants to play a Krogan? Who wants to play an Asari? <laughs> There's blank stares at me. <laughs> but I still wanted to capture that feel of that world. And I ended up finding Uncharted Worlds, which is a PBTA game Sort. I mean, it's PBTA, but it's a little different than most PBTA games. And I have run that many, many times with basically Mass Effect with the serial numbers filed off because it's the feel I wanted, 
but I didn't really want to try and educate people on a whole <laughs> setting, lore, world that they had no connection to. Here's a question. Have you played or run a game that is very specifically based off of a video game? I mean, I literally ran Dishonored <laughs> <laughs> because there is there is an RPG for it. So, I mean, that's a little on the nose. I mean, that's fine because I was I'm going to mention Dragon Age. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I picked up the Fabula Ultima RPG that's supposed to emulate JRPGs. I haven't run it yet, but it looks really interesting. I mean, I have yeah. um, I have heavily adapted like inspiration from the Bioware Mass Effect games into like systems that I've used, mm-hmm. like the whole like idea of an, like an NPC loadout when you you pick your your you know, your landing party or whatever, and here you're going down to the the planet the the surface of the planet with. I kind of use that's a similar idea to, for when my um, players bring NPCs along with them on adventures. So instead of running like a full NPC, like whole stat sheet and, you know, they have an order and initiative or whatever, um, I have just like one little card for the NPC that has like one ability and the PCs can choose when to use that ability in the combat. And then there's like a cooldown on it. So like X number of turns or X number of rounds before the ability can come up again and they can use it again. That's interesting. I mentioned Dragon Age because I wanted to try running dragon age uh and i got it into my head that i was going to very specifically run the dragon age inquisition companions on a day off (laughs) uh and the whole idea was is like only six players but all nine of the companions were available (laughs) and they had to choose at least two of each type because there's three uh rogues mages and fighters choose at least two of those if it's a full group of six and the rest of them are all off on a mission with the inquisitor (laughs) so it's like you have your typical the inquisitor is off doing adventures with the three companions they've taken with them and the rest of them are left back and they have to deal with this problem i should revisit that again because it was a lot of fun to run it it's just i'm not necessarily as comfortable in the age system so there was a little bit of clunkiness in actually running it. They they just updated the age system too. So they might they might have um, smoothed out some of those edges that didn't weren't clicking with you. Yeah, I haven't looked at that, but I do know that they have made some updates to it. You take specializations earlier and things like that, so that you know you're getting a little more customization early. But I have not done a deep dive into that. I've been spending more time looking at modern age <laughs> things. So part of the reason this topic came up was. I have been thinking about Baldur's Gate from the perspective of a person who runs D&D, role-playing games in general, and how, you know, the game is very obviously influenced by it, but some of the things that are in the game are ideas that you should use in your game, and some of the ideas are things that will never work at the table. For example, the characters have way more hit points. (laughs) in the video game than they Mm -hmm. do at your table and that's a good thing for both both sides of of that veil um but what are some things you guys think you know you can use as just general inspiration from video games and i'm not talking specific plot elements or just ideas that are in video games that you can use as a gm to help kind of help your game 
So one of the things that I really liked in a lot of the boss fights in Spider-Man is that when you are fighting one person, there's usually something in the environment when it's a boss fight that boosts them. And just trying to wail on them directly does not really help you as much as if you figure out how to disable the thing that is continually pumping stuff into them or defending them or whatever. And actually on my on my website, I wrote up like how to use some of the um, these kind of challenges using the new Marvel multiverse rules and how you can use those basically as characters that are doing a thing. And that thing is basically, you know, granting a power or something to another character. So all of these things are acting and it, you know, it gives you more to do than just having, you know, four heroes gang up on one villain, which isn't no matter what the action economy looks like in a game, that's not going to last as long. And it's not going to feel as satisfying as it does when you have electro drawing this power from all these different, you know, transformers around him. And you can't get through this electrical yeah, field. Yeah, there's a point in superhero games where it, the, the combat doesn't get exciting anymore because it's just, you know, banging against each other and it's not really doing <laughs> anything exciting. Uh, and that's something you have to be careful of in superhero games. So, like I said, we've been I've been doing a lot of raiding in World of Warcraft. And one of the things I noticed about their dungeon design is that the um, the monsters that lead up to the boss will usually have some sort of miniature version of the boss's mechanic baked in. So you learn like what telegraphs to look for, or you learn what kind of like, you know, damage you're going to expect or, you know, the diseases that you have to cleanse or whatever before you get to the boss fight, which in, in a video game where you die, you just respawn again. Um, you can, you know, bang your head against the mechanics, but in a role-playing game where death is a little more weighty, I mean, depending on the system, not much more weighty, but sometimes it's more weighty. <laughs> you definitely can't reload from a save. Yeah, exactly. Right. And like, so like one of the things I really struggle with, with like the big, you know, boss battle when I'm running a game is how do I, like, how do I telegraph the, the immense power of this boss in a way that doesn't just wipe them out? Mm-hmm. I think I need to take more from that dungeon design where, you know, you preview it, you, you know, you give hints of it um, with all of the stuff leading up to it. Um, and you weave that in kind of basically it's foreshadowing to what they can expect. I think some of what I've picked up is like one of the aspects is kind of adventure structure. You know, the idea of picking up the quest in one place, you know, and where it leads you and how it can spiral into larger things. And, you know, this is not necessarily from any specific game but just in general the best games that i like tend to have a really good structure to their quests that kind of build off of each other and that's something i really enjoy in a game um another thing that i would say is because of the games i enjoy it helps me remember leave those spaces in the game at the table for the characters to interact mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it's those character interactions that make us end up loving. Okay. My perspective on this, <laughs> I know there, I have a friend who has played mass effect and he just got annoyed at all of the talking. And I'm like, but he's like, why can't I, cut, <laughs> why can't I skip past this cutscene? I'm like, that's like 50% of the game <laughs> because that's the story. And he'll still uh bitch about this anyway. 
<laughs> For most of the people that enjoy these games, it's those character interactions and the story beats that happen between characters that kind of elevate the game and are remembered longer. Even if the combats are fun and the adventure parts are fun, it's the story beats that, that happen between characters that are great. Like Jared mentioned uh, Midnight Suns. It's all about becoming friends with your Marvel superhero friends. <laughs> you know, it really is. It's so good. It's weird, but it's so good. One of the things I wanted to call out about Midnight Suns, too, because it is kind of the opposite of the reputation that Baldur's Gate 3 has for, you know, romancing <laughs> your companions. I am not going to reveal who, because if you play this, it's fun to figure this out. There are two characters that are attracted to each other and keep kind of sliding past each other and your character can play matchmaker more or less by nudging conversations in certain ways and i like that idea that you're not trying to romance somebody for your character you're trying to get these other characters together and i would love to set something up like that in an rpg where you know this person and this person would be perfect for each other and in between adventures you are trying to get those two together That's a point I love in, in Midnight Suns. There's also in uh, Dragon Age Inquisition, and actually Mass Effect, too. There are, if you don't romance certain characters with your PC, they will slowly hook up in the background, which is <laughs> always, it's always really fun when that happens. Makes the world feel more alive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it definitely makes the mm. world feel more alive. I know one of the things I've been thinking about with... Baldur's Gate 3 is the sheer amount of detail that is in this world. They thought of everything. You can go over here and deal with this thing, or you can completely skip it, or, you know, whatever. It's just there's so many options and variations that can happen just because of the detail they put in the world. And part of the thing I wanted to talk about is you as a GM cannot put that level of detail in your game. Don't even try because it will break you. They have a whole team working on all of those various <laughs> contingencies. Yeah. You are one person. I'm not saying don't try and make your world feel lived in. Just don't use that as your standard because it will break you. <laughs> or rather try tricks. Try, try a little like magician obfuscation tricks to make it seem like you've done all of that work without, yeah. without killing yourself over yeah. all of that planning. Like having pre-rendered backgrounds. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Beyond not trying to break yourself by putting too much detail in a, uh, in a game, what else do you need to be careful of when trying to translate ideas from a video game to the table? If what you're trying to emulate is not clicking at the table, even if you really wanted it to, don't keep forcing it. Mm. Mm -hmm. There may be something that you feel that is you know, warm and fuzzy to you and nobody else is picking up on it and it's just not doing anything for them. And in that case, you're spending a lot more energy on something that is not going to feed back into you. So you're not going to be getting energy back off of that effort that you're putting into the game. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to figure out like, okay, is this actually connecting with anyone? And it's not even that it, that it went wrong. It's just, it just, it's just sitting there. That's, that's a good advice for almost anything you bring to the table. Like if, if, if it's not clicking with your players, just let it slide. 
I know it can be heartbreaking that you put effort into a thing, <laughs> but if the players aren't going to engage with it and you feel like you have to force them into it, that's just going to make everyone unhappy. Then they adopt an NPC that you never intended to make it past one session and <laughs> they hang on to him for the rest of the campaign. So, yep, I, w- I would say know the know the difference in the medium. You're fighting that fight and um, it's happening in like, you know, attacks are happening in seconds. Right. And we all know that like a big combat in D&D uh, that is going to take like 30 minutes around if you're really snappy about everything. So something that could be really exciting um, and heart racing in a video game, clearing out entire dungeons worth of monsters in Diablo, right? And hundred percenting that map and getting every little nook and cranny and clearing out every baddie. That's going to take sessions and it's just going to be wall to wall combat. And if, I mean, if that's what your table wants, awesome. Um, but if people are like, okay, well, here's another group of creatures, I guess we roll initiative again, right? It doesn't translate. So no, know where the line is between this is stuff that works really well like we were talking about like the structure versus like where where like the mechanics might rub up against um what you're trying to emulate and make sure that those mesh well before you try to pull one thing over into another yeah i would also say be careful of difficulty level you know in addition to the volume of stuff that's in a video game that doesn't translate directly to the table You also need to be careful of how hard you're making encounters because in a video game, as we mentioned, you could just reload your save and try again with different tactics. We don't get to do that at the table. You know, it doesn't work like that. Um, So you get one shot of your players going up against a boss. So you want to, you want to have that encounter be challenging but not so deadly that they're going to wipe out. You need to be able to adjust on the fly or you need to, you know, have the encounter be tailored to the capabilities of those characters at that point in time. You know, you're wandering, wandering around an open world and you go into an area that you're not ready for yet. Ooh. <laughs> uh, in, a, in a video game, you can be just like, okay, I wasn't ready for that. Reload and go someplace else. That doesn't work at the table. So if your players are going someplace they shouldn't, you need to telegraph it a lot more clearly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I would also say like expectations, right? Expectations when you're playing a video game is like, you know, that there's like a limited amount that you can do, right? You can only do the things that are like bound to your keypad or programmed into the game and like there's going to be invisible walls that you're going to run up against and like that doesn't break you out of the game because you know going in like oh okay i can't jump over this bench uh because the programmer didn't put anything over there so whatever but in a in a role-playing game there's there's different expectations and if you are trying to plan your session with the eye towards like they will there are only this limited number of things they can do like you gotta, you gotta have some concessions there. You gotta know how to like work, work that around, um, and use your use your GM toolkit to to get them back on track without making them run into an invisible wall. In the Horizon Forbidden West DLC, Burning Shores, I spent about fifteen minutes trying to jump through a window. I thought I could jump through when actually the puzzle was supposed to be to go around and use my pull caster to open a wall on the other side and 
I didn't realize it. And I'm like, why can't I get through this? I can't figure out how to get into the MacGuffin that I need to get to. And it was, yeah, it's video games are great, but they don't allow for the same flexibility of your player's imagination. And that, I mean, that's the thing again, I won't spoil this, but there's a couple times in midnight suns where you suffer a major setback in a cutscene, and you don't want to do that at the table. You don't want to tell the people at the table, a massive thing just happened in this world and you have no chance to affect it. You just get to stand there and watch and be devastated by it. Yeah. Midnight suns has that a couple of times where you win the fight, but you still lose because the cutscene is taking the story in the direction it needs mm-hmm. to go. Yeah. I made that mistake a couple of times when I was just starting out. I'd be like, oh, it's like an AMV cutscene. And everybody at the table's like, but why? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. And sadly, <laughs> I was I was in a Savage Worlds zombie apocalypse game, and that the end of every chapter, because it was a published adventure, the end of every chapter of the GM really made it feel like we were losing in the cutscene because we would get to a place we would establish something we were actually kind of feeling good about our characters and then it'd be like this thing happens okay we'll try and stop it you can't it's like the opposite problem of the uh the players shooting your villain as they start to monologue (laughs) yeah (laughs) you don't want them to shoot your villain as they monologue so don't don't do that very often (laughs) but your players also don't want you to basically take their wins away from them in cutscenes, yeah. it's, it's there's certain things you can do to like kind of move things in those directions without it being like you're taking the agency away from your players. Set that up as the next challenge for them, right? Give them mm-hmm. the opportunity to try to to change it. Yeah, and I think before anyone thinks that the GM can't introduce big setbacks in the game at all, the the thing that I think we're talking about is you're there at the scene and you can't change it. This isn't talking mm-hmm. about like, yes, you save the world over here. And now this other problem popped up over here. That's fine. It's the fact that you're there on the ground and unable to make any change in what's happening. You defeat the bad guy in the scene, but then the bad guy stands up, says his thing and kidnaps the person you were trying yeah. to save anyway. Yeah. No, it's like, don't, don't do those things. <laughs> so uh we should probably start wrapping up any last thoughts about video games if you tell yourself that you're playing this video game as research for your game prep then <laughs> it feels less like you're slacking <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> i'm gonna say that all the time now <laughs> the only thing i would say is for some reason probably around a decade ago people got this feeling like oh if we make rpgs you know tabletop rpgs feel more like video games that's cheapening it and that's not utilizing the full breadth of what tabletop rpgs can do but it's like there are game design and story beats that you can take from other things and use them in game it's not a failure if you are identifying things in video games that are going to work in your in your game And I'm going to just end with saying I will get a Horizon game to the table at some point. (laughs) I mean, maybe by the time I get this to happen, they will have actually come out with a TTRPG version of the Horizon world. But, oh, man, I want to do that so bad. In theory, oddly enough, Spin Master was developing one of those. And if you've never heard of Spin Master, they make action figures. (laughs) 
and they got the rights to do a video or a, a video game ad- adapted tabletop RPG. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, it could be amazing and it could be absolutely terrible. <laughs> This show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can be a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link at the Gnome Stew website, the Gnome Stew Patreon. We love doing this, so our patrons help us keep it going. If you're enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Misdirected Mark plays. Phil, Chris, Bob, and Jerry play and discuss a campaign they've created and are playing. Now, instead of just hearing them talk about the theory of gaming and game mastering, you can actually hear what they do at the table. It's come full circle in their exploratory play series, MM Plays. You can find all of us at gnomestew.com, gnomestew on Blue Sky, and gnomestew on Facebook. Gnomes, is there anything else you want to give a shout out to today? I am going to be self-serving for once, and if you would like to drop by my blog at whatdoiknowdayare.com, you could read that article, and I would feel really good, that article about turning obstacles into characters in the Marvel Multiverse RPG. Josh, you have anything you want to shout out? I'm going to seed my uh, shout out over to Jared and say uh, you should definitely go (laughs) check out that article because that's what I'm going to do as soon as we're off of this uh, call. I'm just going to say play Baldur's Gate 3 because it's a really, really good (laughs) game. It really is. And I also throw out that you should play Midnight Suns because not enough people did that when it came out. Yeah, Yeah, I want a sequel to Midnight Suns and that's probably not going to happen. But it's a good game. It is. I'm going to let you guys Uh, avoid becoming part of the stew because i really need to get back into baldur's gate 3 so we're done here it's okay i had a save point so we were covered either way